Ian McEwen, I usually start these interviews by telling my guests what they've achieved. So I would say that you're a Booker Prize winner for Amsterdam, that you've become a member of the Order of the Companions of Honour. And I'd run through lots of your books, like the Children Act, Nutshell and so forth. Actually, I am doing it in telling you that this is how I would normally do it. But I'm wondering whether that might be just a bit too formal. So I was going to just say, hello, how are you? And now I've spoiled it. Right. Well, I'm fine. Thank you very much. It's just after lunch. Uh, I've had a good morning's work. Uh, I ought to do some exercise of some sort, maybe walk the dog or maybe address the rowing machine. I don't know. The weather is not conducive. But, um, yeah, I'm feeling well. I'm halfway through a new novel. Uh, It has its usual travails and joys. I have only the minor ailments of of life um, physically for someone who's 75. Uh, So I feel in reasonably good shape. Looking forward to a holiday in Scotland in a few days with the whole family. Having just had one big family holiday last week, having another one soon. So, yeah. I'm well. I'm okay. I'm interested to know what you think of the interview and how much we can really expect an interview to say about someone because one can live with someone for one's whole life and not know them entirely. You can live with yourself for a whole life and not perhaps know yourself entirely. So I'm sort of I'm not quite having a crisis of confidence in the form of the interview, but I'd be curious to know from your perspective as someone who is much interviewed what you make of the process and what what you make of the outcome of interviews? I think at at some level, there's an element of performance. It's a public self. You're in an arena. There are maybe several hundred or several thousand or in some rare cases, even a million or two others involved. So uh, I often think of a lovely villanelle by Wendy Cope, which is called Never Trust a Journalist a rather brilliant piece because the villanelle is a rather demanding form. And um, it's very easy, as she says in this villanelle, to forget about the arena and all the other people because you meet charming, intelligent, clever, engaging people. And you think uh, you're talking to a, a friend or a stranger with whom you might be intimate and say things that you then deeply regret. And as we were talking earlier, uh, before we started recording, um, you can intrude on other people's privacy. So uh, one has to be careful. Uh, and every now and then someone gets into colossal trouble. I've watched in the media and I, uh, they've said something that in cold print looks you know, deeply disrespectful to someone of colour or sounds sexist or was a joke. But, you know, in cold print, again, it just doesn't look like a joke at all. Uh, and in this age of social media and hounding, suddenly <laughs> these people are being crucified. Uh, so um, you and I have done quite a few interviews now, so I feel perfectly relaxed in your company. But there is still a little censor, a little bit of censorship goes on, uh, lines one is not going to cross. One of the most appalling pieces of advice is to come out of all of Greek uh, culture is know yourself. <laughs> it's just a foolish command. Okay, I'll go know myself. How are you going to do that? Ten years of psychoanalysis will just deceive you further. Do you have any sense that you know yourself better now at the age of 75 than you did, I don't know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, maybe even 10, 20 years ago? I like the illusion of of thinking I, I do, but I've also forgotten a lot. It's easy to forget what you were, how you were. Recently, um, Annalena was away and uh, the house was filled with 30-somethings. My son and his wife and their friends. And these were all incredibly bright, driven, young people. And the noise around the dining table was unbelievable. The noise of the laughter, the sheer energy of the bodies. uh, And I I was saying to Annalena when she came back, we sit around with our friends sipping wine and go, yes, I've often thought of that myself. Uh, and they go, yeah, yeah, ah, like this all the time. And, you know, a couple of them are uh, medics, consultants, and others are, you know, very responsible job in charities and so on. But I thought, I have forgotten what I was like. <laughs> I was just like this, so expressive, so loud, so funny. You know. So you might 
know a bit more about yourself now, but you've forgotten yourself, which is also part of the totality of what you were like 40 years ago. Do you think it's possible to pinpoint what or who a human being is, given that we change mm-hmm. physically by the millisecond, that we can't necessarily, can we capture our essence? Can anyone capture our essence? Or are we continually shifting as a being? We live, we move through time. So I think pinpointing is impossible. You can catch a person in that moment. And one of the things I love about poetry, it is the, it is the great machine, if you can excuse the word, of freezing the moment. Uh, literature largely tracks fates through time. And of course, narrative poetry can do that too. But a moment of extreme love or passion or revelation or contact with a landscape or some little aperçu about the moment is what makes poetry capture the essence, maybe not of people, but of existence. Um, but no, I don't think there's an essence. I think uh, we, we sprawl through the hours and days and years. One of the pleasures of writing my last novel, Lessons was trying to catch a whole person through a whole lifetime. Uh, again, you know, highly artificial uh, construction, but still I felt that its central character, I had said more about a character than I'd ever said about a character before because I got him roughly from childhood to old age. Uh, but still, uh, the, the, there's always more to say about people, which is nice. How we how we all know the same person differently, of course, is, um, you know, uh, that old saying about no no man is a hero to his valet. I mean, I don't know a single person who has a valet now, but still, um, the people who know you most intimately um, you know, just have another story. But do they have the essence? I'm, no, I'm, I'm not for essences. We've been on stage together a couple of times recently and you strike me as youthful and physical do you feel yourself getting older yes i'm afraid so i mean i'm not afraid to admit it but i'm afraid that it's happening i noticed it from about the age of 71 or two you feel it uh you feel it in the joints that's a reminder you know and annalina showed me uh two guys, a lovely gay couple who do a kind of physiotherapy thing. And they're all kind of little exercises to do, you know, while you're just standing in a queue. You don't have to go to a gym. Um, and one of the things they told me, it seems they spoke right to me, is, uh, they said this, is that as you get older, you, you start to look like a, like a tortoise. <laughs> so that your head, your neck is parallel to the ground. And you peek out from your shell. And they said, what you've got to do is imagine that someone's putting a hand in front of your face and pushing you. And it's incredibly useful uh, and youthful to suddenly take one's full height. But my default is always <laughs> kind of go like that. And I see my friends, you know, who are all beginning to look like tortoises. Um, and old age is our shell. I think in preparation for an event that you were doing at the Barbican earlier this year, you reread some of your work. Uh, the one with music. Yes. And I'm just wondering whether you were able to see your progression as an author and whether you were distinctly different when you were starting out in the public eye in the late 70s compared wow. to where you are now. Well, there were bits I was, when I was going through stuff for that Barbican performance, there was there were times when I thought I was really good then. You know, so it's not about endless progress. I worry, you know, am I less thought rich? Am I being a little less delightfully energetic in the prose or so? Um, and then I'd be reassured. I read something 15 years later and it reassured me. I think I was, naively unaware of myself in in the late 70s in public and by the way public then was not public now no internet of course and serious literary pursuit was a rather dusty gentlemanly affair and i'd say gentlemanly advisedly it was all run by men and most of its stars were men boys 
uh, I'm glad to see that's all kind of being tipped on its head and challenged properly. No one asked about sales. That was very rude. It was all about whether you got a good review in the Observer or the TLS, basically. Readings of prose were only just coming. I mean, novelists didn't do readings all the time. It's mostly poets who did readings. So I remember the very first interview I ever did for my first book, First Love, Last Rites, and uh, a young woman came from Vogue magazine, and it was going to be a profile uh, and about the book. And she asked some perfectly decent, straightforward question about the book. I had no idea. I just didn't know the answer. I hadn't thought about it. And so it went on. And in the end, Vogue just published a photograph of me, funnily enough, by I think by Lord Snowden, and, and then just a little caption underneath. That's, that's all they could have got out of me. I hadn't learned yet to speak into this public. I hadn't learned the game, the rules, the game, the exchange, the performance of an interview. Uh, so I kept saying, well, I, I, I just don't know the answer to that question. I, uh, let me think about that. <laughs> uh, so I was, I think, quite protectively innocent um, myself in public. Uh, I didn't think about it much and uh, probably should have thought about it a lot more. When a new book of yours arrives, if that's how it happens, I don't know how you get hold of your first shiny copy is that still as an exciting a moment as I imagine it was at the start of your career? No, uh, no, it isn't. Partly, partly through repetition, but partly also um, there are other stages. So you come to this shiny um, first copy. It's always a pleasure, of course. But you know, I see now bound proofs with with the cover on or are a feature in the way that they never were before. So you've seen that already, maybe two months beforehand. For me now, with a word processor and printer, sometimes printing something out for the first time for myself to sit with it and scrawl all over it is almost like publication. That's an excitement, but that's an internal kind of uh, satisfaction rather, I guess, than excitement. My most exciting moment in that respect, it was in 1973. I'd come back from travels in Turkey, Iran, and Afghanistan and Persia, been on the road for many, many months, and um, was starting to write again. And I'd been publishing with a wonderful uh, literary magazine called the American Review, and it was published as a little as a paperback book, a mass market paperback book. It sold a hundred thousand copies. It was edited by a glorious figure now, now dead, Ted Solotarov. And he'd taken one of my stories, uh, and then months later, a copy arrived through the post. And on the cover, it was a bright pink cover, and in white writing, it said, Philip Roth, Susan Sontag, Ian McEwan, Gunter Grass. I mean, those... <laughs> All in the same, you know, mine wasn't just in six point down the bottom. It was all the same size. And the thrill of seeing my own name alongside these writers whom I knew, whose work I knew well and admired, was a hit that I've never been able to repeat <laughs> necessarily. Um, but that was such a hit. And oddly enough, my copy of that disappeared from my shelves years ago and then i was giving a reading in norwich and uh someone came and said i saw this in a second-hand bookshop and and you you've signed it in the corner as if it was yours and sure enough, there where it was so someone must have gone off with it and then dropped dead and their daughter carried it to the nearest second-hand bookshop <laughs> so it's back on my shelves Something I'm not sure I've asked you in the interviews we've done together before is the editing process and the role and the evolving role, if it's been an evolving role, of your editor or editors. How much outside input is there into your finished copies? Well, Annalena is almost my, you know, for the last 25 years, been my first reader. I give it to a close friend who's not a novelist, 
um, more a historian uh, and journalist, T Timothy Garson-Ash, who's always a good reader. I don't take a lot of that kind of um, editing that some people like where, you know, a, a starry editor says, I think you need to drop the first chapter and um, and so on. But I do value the work of a good copy editor. Over a longish novel, there are bound to be repetitions, there are bound to be inconsistencies. I'm very, very careless with chronology. Um, there are often tangles of chronology that need to be sorted out. I'm sort of impatient with you know, that 40,000 words back. I had some date that clashes with you know, this page. I think that can all be sorted out later. The thing was just to you know, keep pushing forward. And it's amazing how my sophisticated, friendly readers like Annalena or, or Tim don't spot these chronology problems either. But I've got a wonderful editor called David Milner who'd done that business for me uh, two or three or even four times now. I really appreciate it. There's a Nigel Williams novel, comic novel, called My Life Lived Twice, where, uh, and it's about, um, well, its central figure is someone's trying trying to um, write. He's a very unsuccessful novelist. Uh, and he, ha uh, he looks at a, an old uh, un draft of an unfinished novel, and it's about um, a giant cockroach, which is savaging and terrorising central London. And in the margins, on about page 280, he's written... Poss make giant rat. <laughs> always struck me, you know, forget the cockroach, it's a rat. But on page 280, uh, but I was, I was um, reaching one of these moments today. I've just finished part one of a novel. It's 55,000 words. I'm very tempted to push on, but I know that I can't push on unless I remind myself of everything that's in part one. Um, and some of it I've kind of half forgotten. Uh, and so I started rewriting it this morning, amazed by how much. And I thought, oh, my God, thank God. I'm, it's, this is my pos make giant rat moment. <laughs> At least I'm doing it on page one. But those, um, Nigel Williams, who's, I think, a great comic writer, uh, really knew this from the inside. When you start to think that your cockroach better be a giant rat on page 280, you're in big trouble. <laughs> Do you ever tear up what you've done so far because you realise you've gone down a route that you're not happy with? I might abandon it. I don't think I'd tear it up because I I like to think that's all part of the story. You know, that, that could be an abandoned draft. Uh, so, yeah. Oh, often um, I've realized that I've trapped myself into uh, uh, taking a course, uh, uh, a movement that, that I don't really want to do, and I need to go back and sort it out now before it's too late. Is there a fundamental difference between writing by hand, writing in pen, and writing on a typewriter or or in a computer, the, it, in terms of the way, well, in any way, but mm. I can imagine that the way one might structure a novel, the mm. way that one might be able to keep hold of it, keep control of it, might be mm. easier with a machine, whereas perhaps when you're writing by pen, there might be a greater sense of flow. I don't know, I'm asking. I know everyone would have a different answer to this, but for me... Uh, running the two in parallel, it, it seems um, the best method. Um, I have an A4 notebook and I have a large iMac computer here and they need each other. I love word processing. I love things being held in memory, uh, the consistency of it, the dependability of it. Uh, except, of course, when things go wrong, but everything's backed up now. I, you know, After years and years of having these you know, panicky phone calls to someone or other to rescue you know, um, three weeks' work, uh, all those methods are now in place. But there's something intimate and liberating about having a pen in your hand, um, 
yes, it's um, it seems to be a kind of writing without responsibility uh, that you can free associate. Maybe it's something connected to to childhood, even that there's something almost. If you've been rattling away at a keyboard to take up a pen, feels like stepping back through time to when you first took up a pen when we had fountain pens, and it's often doodling in such a way that I've started novels, setting the mind free without any responsibility to the notion that someone's going to read this or that it's in the, even it's in the computer's memory. It's just something unspooling on the page. And the magic of it comes back to me fully that you can make shapes on a piece of paper and potentially transform thoughts in your head into someone else's head just by these inky lines and crosses and loops. Uh, something so extraordinary about that. It's such a commonplace. I mean, it's true also of typing, I know. But the sensuality of it is appealing. I always like black ink on white paper. A lot of my American writer friends all write on legal pads, yellow. Um, I can never see the attraction of that. Mm. And also calling it a legal pad just robs it of all interest. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, they've got to be in parallel, writing by hand and rattling the keys. Do you write any of your novels in bed, in your mind, perhaps in semi-sleep? Does an idea come to you maybe even in sleep? Yeah. I don't know about in sleep, but I make a point of always having a pen and little notebook within reach. I know that if, if it's not there, I'm not going to be bothered to get out of bed and go downstairs and get one. Um, and that's very handy because some ideas uh, come and it's very tempting not to write them down because they seem so obvious. And you've got, of course, like all ideas that seem good, it's they've got a sort of of course uh, rubric underneath them. And then the next morning, all, all you can remember is the obviousness, but not the content. Or even worse than that, you don't even remember that you had an idea. I mean, you just, you know, it's, um, it's forgotten. So it's very important to write things down, even trivial things. Um, and I've learned so often, I've been on a walk or something, and I could have just reached for a pen and written it on the back of a five-pound note um, or an old, a receipt rather than just think, oh, I'll write it down when I get home because often it's gone, completely gone. I have that experience when I don't take my camera somewhere with me. I oh, yeah, yeah. so often wish that I yeah. made that extra little bit of effort and taken it. Well, the glorious invention of these little computers we carry in our pockets that are alarm clocks and cameras and letter senders and, you know, 50 other functions. I mean, it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, I don't lament the iPhone or whatever. What for you is the point of the novel? There are two or three things um, central to the point of the novel. One of, I think, is communicating pleasure. I mean, I think we're at our peril if we ignore the pleasure principle in literature. And it's great if you're no longer at school or university, none of our reading is required reading, unless, of course, for you, you've got to go and interview someone. So we're set free. And I think um, if after 30 or 50 pages, you're not getting pleasure from an all, it's time to move on. And of course, pleasure takes all kinds of forms. The other point, I think, is, an, um, is more in the way of an investigation, an investigation that you invite your reader to take with you. And what's being investigated here, I think, is, is human nature, the human condition of or to use this grand term, where we are, what we are, where we are now in history is always a big, interesting question for me. What we are, how we interact, how we deceive ourselves, how we deceive others, um, how we love, how we fall out of love, all those things set down and somehow interrogated, seem to me, very much to the point of, of what literature is. But that investigation, crucially, you have to, take this amorphous abstract notion of a reader with you on on that journey 
but it is a mission to understand, I think, to understand others and, and therefore yourself. How much of you as a writer, and this is an impossible question to answer precisely, of course, but I just would like a sense of it. How much of you as a writer has emerged from reading other novels and perhaps sometimes nonfiction? And how much of it is just there inside you or has developed inside you in parallel to your reading? Well, the novel is an invention and, you know, it's a great matter of great regret that Shakespeare didn't write novels. Um, So there's no avoiding the fact that for me, if I'm writing a novel, it's because I live now, not not in the 15th or 16th or 17th centuries. And we do stand on the shoulders of giants, just like Newton thought he did, in that there are all kinds of methods in the novel that were not available um, before the novel was around. Uh, and more than that, there are the history of the novel is really the expansion of subject matter, the things you could write about. And I think we're all slaves of history in that respect. Uh, I've noticed just recently, the last few months, a huge spate of coming-of-age novels by extremely young novelists. Well, that's their only subject, of course. I mean, what else can they write about? They've just come of age. Um, so we are um, very bound to figures, in my case, like Joyce, uh, where we have forms of representation of consciousness that were not available 50 years before. Um, Matters like free and direct style, uh, again, a technique in which you can describe the world in the third person, but imbue it with the subjectivity of a first person uh, is an invention. Uh, The British like to say it was Jane Austen. The French like to claim a little more plausibly, I think, that it was Flaubert. But yeah, it's 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 something that even children's books now have, you know, that and readers automatically know the rules of it. So that's what I would regard as the given. Uh, no one comes to the novel out of nowhere. Uh, I remember I used to teach at the WEA, the, w, the Workers Educational Association. Um, creative writing course for, and it was great because the people in the, the course were ranged from the early 20s to the 80s uh, all people who had never written before uh, had no pretensions about where it's going to take them they just wanted to do it uh, we talked mostly we were mostly interested in poetry and I noticed that because they were not literary types they hadn't done a lot of reading they were completely the slave of other writers in other words, there are writers who are so grand and great that you don't have to have read them to be influenced by them. Uh, and the extent to which they were all enthralled to a, a certain form of, of kind of Georgian poetry, a, a kind of sweet but fey and fainting and pale and palely loitering kind of poetry uh, that was very common around about the time of Walter de la Mer and Rupert Brooke. Um, uh, uh, so we had a lot of fun talking amongst ourselves about how you could be influenced by the writers you've never read. Then the rest of it, importantly, yeah, the fiction is a very personal form. The novel is a very, very personal form. You can't write a thousand words without feeling you've kind of revealed yourself, even if you've set it in some remote galaxy. Um, There's no way out of it. Your fingerprints are all over it. There's no getting away. And when Flaubert famously said, Madame, Madame Bovary, c'est moi. He knew whereof he spoke. I mean, we are all those characters. They're, they're all bits and extensions of us. And the way we as novelists ask for those characters to be understood, again, is expressive, I think, deeply of, of, of the self. It's the way we are or, or could imagine ourselves to be. So it is that twin track of being absolutely in our time. Nothing of our writing now will surprise the literary historian in 50 years in the future. We say, yeah, those are the kind of things that people in the early 21st century were thinking about. (laughs) And that person too will be trapped in his or her concerns. 
why is it you? Why is it you that I'm talking to you? Why is it you who have has achieved such literary success? But if you think of a, a great footballer, Lionel Messi, for example, yeah. a great cricketer, Ben Stokes, I mean, these people are clearly touched by genius. They may well have had some luck along the way. They no doubt work extremely hard at their craft. Yeah. They're, but they're touched by genius. Mm. How much of your success i'm not talking necessarily about commercial success but the fact that you are treated so seriously as an author that you are held up there on a pedestal is down to innate genius and how much of it is down or ability whatever word one wants talent whatever word one wants to choose and how much of it is down to hard graft and maybe luck maybe other forces how do you see your own success that is a difficult question because yeah, modesty comes into it and so forth. But I'm curious about the answer. Well, I think inevitably it's going to be all of those, bit of luck, a uh, bit of ability. You must remember, I mean, most people I put this question to can immediately come up with an example. When you were at school or university or when you were young, there were people around you who just seemed destined for success. I could think of what various figures. You know, when I was in the sixth form at school, I just thought, He's going to be, you know, he just seems to know the world already. He's only 17. He just, uh, and there were people at university like that. And then nothing happens. And what gets in the way, the great log that falls across their path is personality. So they might have all this talent and maybe a lot of luck and maybe a lot of encouragement, but, you know, alcohol, drugs, vanity, sloth. <laughs> terrible relationships, anger, all the, you know, all kinds of other elements can get in the way of your chances. So I think one element of what's allowed me to go on flourishing as a writer has, has been a certain kind of inwardness. Um, I was a very shy child, very shy teenager, and that held over into my 20s quite strongly. The other thing was a complete infatuation with the idea of literature as a reader. It seemed to me like a sort of priesthood or a colossal conversation that was going on through the centuries that, that you could join in. And entirely devoting your life to this thing seemed perfectly reasonable. And not only that, I had a burning desire never to have a job. Um, so uh, I used to admire you know, musicians. I take two parallel cases. Yehudi Menuhin meant a lot to me in my teens, as did Jimi Hendrix. And when I was listening to them, I thought I would think, well, what about me? You know, what can I do? But I knew I was never going to be able to play the violin. Was, I always thought when I was 17, it was too late to start with the guitar, how wrong I was. Uh, but writing was already something we all did um, and was available and one could begin. So that was a strong element too. I never had any regrets because I stayed out of a job and it was uh, and again was that down to me it was partly the culture of the late 60s that having a job was somehow a kind of defeat uh then there was a, some amazing luck I mean I you know, described finished my first degree had some money from the government department of education to go and do a, an MA somewhere just come back hitchhiking with my girlfriend in Italy sitting on edge of my bed in my parents' house going through some uh, university prospectuses and then seeing a, a rather interesting course at the University of Norwich in which you could, along with your essays, et cetera, et cetera, for a comparative literature degree, which is what this was essentially, a, a tiny bit of it was you could uh, write some fiction, unheard of in a British university at that time. So I went down to the hall. This was still in the days when the phone was in the hall, uh, my parents' house, and phoned the University of Norwich and said, can I speak to Malcolm Bradbury? And within a minute, I was talking to him. Again, the world had fewer people in it. It was much easier to find people or park or, you know, it wasn't so crowded. And I said, I just read about this course with a bit of creative writing thrown in, a bit of writing, and he said, oh, we've closed it down. There'll be no applicants. And I said, well, I'd like to apply. So he said, come, well, come and have a chat. So I borrowed my father's car, drove from Middle Wallop in wherever it is, near Andover, uh, to Norwich. 
met Malcolm Bradbury and he said, well, leave me behind some of your stories. I hadn't written any stories. Uh, and I said, oh, I left them at home. Uh, and he said, well, send them, you know, send them in due course. So I went home, wrote two stories very fast. Terrible stories, actually. And he said, come along, join me. So complete luck, complete luck. I got no teaching in how to write. Malcolm was a, very much a media don. We only ever met either in the corridor or once in a pub for half a pint. Uh, and he'd just say, I, I like that one. Just when, when, when you can do the next, what, what roughly is it about? Mm. I wrote 30 stories that year, as well as doing the degree, which was most of the work. You know, writing comparisons, uh, essays on the relationship between Anna Karenina and Middlemarch. Um, was great. I mean, I was perfectly happy to do that, competent to do that. But what I really wanted to do was just write stories. So there it began. No course. Angus Wilson, novelist, there in the summer, um, also you know, showed me what an amazing romantic life, as I thought the novelist could be. He was flamboyantly dressed, spoke flamboyantly, gay, uh, utterly committed to his partner who'd been sacked from his job because he was gay, who he was a social worker, Tony Garrett. They ran in a marvellous book-filled, rather gossipy household in a cottage in the woods in deepest Suffolk. And I thought, yeah, that's the life. Yeah, that's how I want to be free, <laughs> uh, like them. So, in part, priesthood. Total commitment. And the friendships I made in those early years, in the early 70s when I was in London, uh, with you know, Martin Amos, Julian Barnes, etc., and the poets, James Fenton, Craig Rain, they all had the same notion of whatever fun they might be having in the evening, it was total commitment. Um, so I've always been sceptical of novelists who win some incredible prize with a first novel. I think, are they just people who, who've written a novel, the way footballers write a novel? Or are they novelists? Are they going to give 60 years to this form? Then they can have the prize. I'll give them the prize myself. You say you hadn't written any stories by the time you went up to Norwich yeah. to meet this Don. No. Does that mean you hadn't written stories during your childhood, that you hadn't actively wanted to be a writer and, until you got to that age? I was a reader, so I was full of admiration for the whole business of it. But I started writing in my second year at university. But I wrote, I wrote plays. A terrible, I wrote a terrible play, and handed in to the university, this is Sussex, um, the Drama Society, and then next term went along to the open discussion of what they were going to put on that term. term with thudding heart and mine didn't even come up <laughs> it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me um and then i set myself you know projects like i wrote the screenplay based on a thomas mann short story tony o'kruger it never occurred to me to give it to anyone but i hadn't written any fiction um but it's certainly on my mind i lack subject matter i guess it's always a problem if you're 18 or 19 writing fiction. And I guess you fall back on a coming-of-age story. Um, and I was impatient with that. Um, very impatient. But I had had one of those English teachers that often lie behind many novelists' early development who had imbued me with... Uh, very romantic idea of, of what literature was. I mean, really, it, that lay behind the sense of joining a priesthood that you could just now, that would be your whole life. You'd do nothing else, except have a lot of fun, of course, along when you weren't writing. But basically, you'd stay out of a job, live by, if you'd write some journalism or whatever. Uh, I, I mean, in those early years, I wrote, journalism I used to work for the radio times a lot uh at a radio play you know I'd all uh, and book reviews anything to just keep going uh, and service the 
the rent, etc., uh, and and stay with the form of the novel. You had a peripatetic childhood following your father's military career, didn't you? You yeah. spent time, for example, in North Africa. Did experience of different countries, different cultures, somehow infuse you with ideas about the world that helped you in your development as a writer? Not really. When you travel with the British Army, uh, you travel with a, a rather regressive uh, uh, microcosm of English class society. Um, and I noticed, you know, when, when Britain is at war and there are interviews with, uh, when we were in Iraq, for example, and there's an interview on television with a corporal, uh, and then there's an, an interview with his commanding officer, the accents <laughs> are, tell you everything. Um, it's completely class-based. The kids who go to Sandhurst are not the kids who uh, go to their local recruiting office. I mean, it's it's all still there. So there was a rather enclosed sense of being in a little army base in North Africa or before that Singapore that was quite discouraging to finding out about the culture. I, I live within this sort of army world or... My father's friends were all men who'd come up through the ranks. So we had a completely different social life from his fellow officers who, you know, were half his age and had gone through Sandhurst. So I didn't know their children. All my friends were slightly déclassé. You know, when you travel up through the ranks, the moment you're commissioned as an officer, you get posted away from the sergeant's mess. Um, and your former colleagues there, but you're never fully accepted by the colonel and the Sandhurst um, officers. The impact it did have on me, the, the largest stretch of time abroad was North Africa, Libya, Tripoli, was landscape. Uh, so the Mediterranean landscape and deserts have uh, fixated me. But while I was there, I used to read children's books um, set in England, and I'd long to be among woods and ferns and thick green uh, places. So going to a rather strange and wonderful boarding school, Wolverston, which was run by the uh, London County Council, and its composition was largely working-class kids from central London, but had passed 11 plus. But a big smattering of colonels and ambassadors, sons and um, actors, sons, and orchestra. So it was an extraordinary mix of kids. There's only 300 of us. And again, another piece of luck. In Tripoli, there was no school after the age of 11. There was an army primary school, which we had a standard 1944 Education Act education, perfectly good. And uh, my dad then took charge of the idea of sending me away to boarding school in England. But he knew nothing about boarding school. He'd left school at 14 became a butcher's boy and then, you know, looked for work on the Clyde and lied about his age and joined the army. But one of his sergeants, I always think of him as Sergeant Smith. I don't know if that was really his name. said, Oh, my boy's gone to this school uh, in Wilson and it's marvelous. And so my dad sent me there. He got a recommendation and it happened to be a wonderful place. I mean, got a, first-rate grammar school education in, in in an institution that was unlike any other in England, uh, in that the class basis just wasn't there. Working-class kids predominated, but there was lots of, of other kind of kids, and they were all thrown in together, and quite a lot of races mixed together too. And that I would count as one of my most extraordinary pieces of luck. I wasn't privately educated. I did not go to Oxford or Cambridge. I went to a brand new university in which uh, the map of learning, as Asa Briggs put it, uh, was being redrawn and had not just the Virginia Woolf back down to Beowulf procedural kind of romp through uh, literary history, but, you know, a lovely course called um, Quantum Mechanics for Liberal Arts Know-Nothings title just drew me straight in and 12 weeks one-on-one -on -one with a man who had been a lawyer at the Nuremberg trials and then went on to be head of Penguin Books, Peter Calvo-Caressi and Quentin Bell, um, you know, last survivor of Bloomsbury, 
um, taught six of us um, the painting and literature of the period. All of those, um, oh yeah, plus I read Dante and Virgil and Kafka because there was a marvelous course, everyone had to do it, called The Modern European Mind. Marvelous course. And I got all the Shakespeare I wanted and all the Jane Austen and the rest. So all of that seemed to be like luck. If I'd gone to Cambridge and gone to King's College, I think I never would have left. I'd just been, you know, I love reading, so I I could easily I could easily be an obscure academic for the rest of my life. If I read some of your titles to you, Amsterdam, Saturday on Chessel Beach, The Children Act, Machines Like Me, these feel like big names in literature. They feel like perhaps literary milestones. If you go to an event, if you're speaking at an event, maybe it depends on the event, but I can imagine a lot of people still want to talk to you about atonement. Yeah. Did it ever feel like a challenge to, in a, in a sense, sort of escape the success of atonement? You feel to me like an author who keeps producing major works. Is that how it feels to you? And did atonement bring any sort of pressure to you, as well as presumably the enjoyment of success? Well, I've never had a a commercial success like that before it or since. I mean, it was a sort of, it was unique uh, in that. I, I know what you mean. And sometimes I've read uh, negative or hostile pieces saying he hasn't written anything since Atonement or something like that. But I'm, I'm well aware that the person writing that probably hasn't read much of what I've done since either. So it's just kind of an on D. No, it doesn't. I mean, I mean, we've done public events and um, the questions range. There'll, there'll be atonement. It's often about the movie, by the way, not the novel. <laughs> so it's all, already at one remove from me. But the questions range over, satisfyingly, over lots of, of the past novels. I'm I'm okay with that. When I go to uh, Cheltenham Festival this year, I'm doing an event with Tim Gartnash. But straight after that, I'm going to talk to a lot of sixth formers about atonement because what keeps it alive is these poor kids have to have to read it if they want an A-level. Required reading, it's a whole other matter from chosen reading. But still, it, it gives me a hit when I meet, and they're usually a throng of girls, and I think when we did an event, Guildford or Basingstoke, there were lots of these kids, again, mostly girls, with they come to have their copies of Atonement signed and they've got marginalia th thick on every page and lots of little post-it notes. And, um, and the copies look, you know, flatteringly battered and <laughs> thumbed. And um, it's exciting to talk to 17-year-olds who are getting such a hit out of, out of literature. So no, um, no, it doesn't, it doesn't trouble me at all. I remember uh, Martin Amos telling me uh, that one of the many things that made Kingsley Amos extremely angry <laughs> was if someone came up to him and said, "Oh, I do love that lucky Jim." <laughs> so I know, I know the problem that, um, or sometimes you, when someone dies and a voice on the radio or television tells you that. Um, he was known for, and it was something you know right at the beginning of his or her career. You think they wouldn't like that? They wouldn't like that. So I know what you're saying, but it, I, I I don't think I'm really saying anything. Well, I'm, I know what I, you're asking. I'm not. I'm, it, I'm it, not. It, actually, could be, it could easily I, be a problem, but it isn't. it isn't. I'm not. I'm not implying that it's a problem. It was yeah. simply that, and I, and I think my point was that you keep bringing out books that mm. are that become well known. Yeah, it's just the atonement. They don't, they don't come as well known as atonement. Um, it's true, and I uh, the cover was redesigned recently, and I picked up a copy. You see, it's in its fifty fourth printing. Um, whereas, if I look at novels published straight after Saturday, it was in its twenty fifth, which is great. You know, but uh, atonement is the only time I've made that crossover, uh, particularly in the states, into a, a readership that doesn't read literary novels for example and what drove that was the movie not not the reviews or you know word of mouth or anything the movie drove that novel in onto the laps of all kinds of people who would not normally read me of all your novels 
and this may be an impossible question to answer, which of your novels would you like most to be remembered by or do you think deserves most to be associated with you? I'm tempted to say Lessons not only because it's the novel I've most recently finished and published, but because I felt I poured more thoughts and life and energy and emotion into that than... uh, uh, and at length, and at leisure, uh, and expansively, than than I've ever been able to do before. The novel that still means a great deal to me, and probably is less read these days, is Black Dogs. A kind of opposition of of of, of feeling uh, of how we are in the world, whether we value rationality against intuition or. Um, science against religion or emotion against reason. It's still, that remains a very important book for me. It's a kind of, it's a hinge point in my own writing too, early 90s. So yeah, um, those two together would would do it for me. Just reflect briefly on lessons and what you were trying to do with it, what it meant to you as a book. Because as you said earlier, I think you're tracking someone through yeah. their life that's semi-autobiographical. You're taking in some of the big moments, political or global affairs moments of your lifetime. You're also taking in the experience of a boy who is sexually abused by his teacher. And so there's an enormous amount going on in it. And actually that experience of sexual abuse, which is what it was because he, well, he was 11 when he was first inappropriately touched by his female teacher, his piano teacher. But then I think he was 14 when that became a sexual relationship. And interestingly, I thought you did sexualize that relationship. You, you sort of wrote from his perspective, you eroticized it. And I found that interesting because I wondered whether you would have done the same had he been a girl with a male teacher. So tell us what for you was going on, what what you're doing with with lessons. It's a big book. It's, it, not all of your books are, are very long, are they? But this is a big book. I think um, for me, uh, just that, um, a sense of trying to get a whole life, a whole character, a whole person a whole history of our times um, within 500 pages um, was the project. And having one seminal event cast not only a shadow, but also some light through that 11-year-old boy's the rest of his life um, was important to just as history shapes us so our own personal history shapes us uh it takes a long time for that central character roland to accept even that it was abuse because it was also love um and it was a love that he thought he initiated even though he was profoundly mistaken in that he was manipulated into it and it also um was entangled with a global event the cuban missile crisis uh, in which he thought uh, at the age of 14 that he would die without ever knowing or having a sexual experience, um, which is what drives him to the door of the piano teacher. So if you ask me what my general sense of that novel is, I have to say that I've never before tried to track uh, a person throughout their whole lives and I, and to come back right to your first question about the essence um, only by catching the entire movement through time and through history and through shifts in in social acceptance and awareness and beliefs uh, can we even begin to get a sense of what it's like to be a person in the 20th and 21st century and just to be clear, because I said it was semi-autobiographical, you did not experience sexual abuse as a child. I'm just saying, no. spelling that out. No, I didn't. Um, but I, you know, I didn't find it difficult to imagine it. 
Two more questions. As a famous person, and as a very intelligent famous person, your opinion on world events, on British politics and so forth, is presumably often sought. I mean, I remember when I was working at the BBC, seeking your input on a on a story. And I, I wonder what that's like for you. Does it feel like a privilege that you can voice, if you so choose, your views on important events, important issues? Or is there any part of you that think, or and is there any part of you that thinks, well, hang on, I'm an author. That is what I do. Is it right that I'm being asked my question on this, that, or the other? I mean, earlier you were talking about being careful in an in, in interview. Yeah. And if I were to ask you about a particular matter and you gave a certain answer, perhaps any answer, that might make a headline. Yeah. Just because you well, are who you are. So Sometimes it feels like if, I, if I'm wrapped up in my own work and the phone rings, I'm going to you know, talk about some issue on the Today programme at 7 30 tomorrow morning it feels like um pressure i i'm usually tempted to say no because i don't want to be um lured into uh just straight out of sleep you know one could speak inadvertently and i always feel some guilt about not doing it um there's been a a handful of times when I'm very grateful to be asked because I just can't wait to to speak. Sometimes I've blundered into uh, speaking, writing. Um, I remember when the attacks in New York and Washington happened, 2001, September, a uh, call coming through, I think, from either for me and Katz or Alan Rushbridger. And it was only an hour after, or maybe the, yeah, it was an hour after it all happened. And I'd just been watching the television like everyone else, completely stunned. And they said, would you write something uh, for us for the front page? But we need it by 5.15. And it was sort of 10 to 4. And I, my mind already said no. And my mouth said yes. (laughs) It was... And uh, I was due to drive my son, who just, um, my older son, Will, finished school and he was starting his gap year and I was driving him straight away to London to where he was going to lodge with a friend and he was going to start working at, um, was it the River Cafe? Yeah, I think so. So I was getting ready to leave the house. That's why I said no. Uh, And also I, I... I was, like everyone else, just numb with this experience. And then I found myself sitting in front of the computer with an hour and a quarter to write 1,400 words and uh, (laughs) had to do it. Um, And it was like those swims in the pool in early May. Uh, I felt great to have done it. (laughs) I'm very pleased I did it. And then, then I did it again on a Friday, another piece for The Guardian. And I was so reluctant and so panicked this idea that I'd said yes that I would fail terribly if I couldn't meet this deadline and I had to assemble some thoughts (laughs) all I could think of was it's a terrible thing (laughs) yes stop the press it's a terrible thing say that uh, 400 times and you'll have 1200 words (laughs) or whatever Um, but lots of times especially when the issues are you know identity and trans activists and sensitivity editors in publishing and i just want to get into the you know i know that it'll just cause i mean i had it when i signed a letter in support of jk rowling and i remember it too around the fatwa and salman that there were certain newspapers and certain editors who just want to lure you in and get you stabbed or get you attacked, or get you... They want that. I mean, it's all part of their... You know, it would thrill them if you'd have... Do you be the next person to be you know, fat-wired or knifed or um, pilloried or you know, whatever? So there is a gamesmanship about some of this. One has to be very, very careful. Uh, and I don't like... I mean, if, if I get swept up in a controversy, especially when social media gets going... It's like a, a huge 
force a gale blowing through your house for a week or two. And it's hard to work. You lose that nice, calm, steady, onward flow of your own stuff. Um, so it's a great mix of feelings I have about it. Responsibility to it, yes. Um, guilt about not doing it. Um, and anxiety about being rising to the occasion and so on. You're not on social media, of course. No. Final question. Yeah. Outside of writing, what what are your passions? Music clearly is one of them. Yeah, music, reading, tennis, still play, uh, hiking, cooking. Um, we have a very lovely dog. I'm very passionate about him. Large um, border collie, very eccentric, <laughs> very eccentric. Some of my best entertainments are um, sitting around a kitchen table, drinking red wine, and eating with friends. I mean, those. I'd rather do that than go to the theatre these days. <laughs> Ian McEwen, thank you very much for answering my 20 questions. Real pleasure, Matt, as always, talking to you.